Welcome to the Lighting Your Way podcast. I'm your host, Guardian Nurses founder, Betty Long. During season three, we'll be delving in deeper to the amazing lives and stories of nurses and other healthcare professionals from around the country. We'll also be talking with a few of my nurse advocate colleagues at Guardian Nurses. You'll get a behind the scenes peek at the healthcare system, as well as get advice on how to get the best care when you or a loved one is a patient. Many studies prove that getting a second opinion can often change the diagnosis and the treatment plan, sometimes in as much as 25% of cases. In the last couple of years, second opinion services, like the one we'll talk about today, have grown in the healthcare space. These services are typically private pay, meaning they are not covered by health insurance, but for many patients who can afford to use them, they can be life-changing. Today, we talk with Kirsten Gruder, nurse practitioner and director of clinical operations at Best in Class MD, one of the newer companies offering second opinions, which was founded by two orthopedic physicians from the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. HSS, as it's known, is the oldest orthopedic hospital in the U.S. and is consistently ranked as the top orthopedic hospital in the country. Let's start our conversation with Kirsten. Kirsten Gruder, welcome to Lighting Your Way podcast. Thank you for taking time to join me. Of course. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it was great that we uh, connected last week. And um, you are both a nurse practitioner and you have a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit in you. So we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, but first, I want to talk about your nursing career. So give me a little background. Tell our listeners a little bit about you and your career. Yeah, sure. Um, so I went to nursing school at Boston College um, up in Massachusetts. I, you know, I don't know what it was that drew me to nursing specifically. My mom's a social worker. My aunt's a nurse. I feel like it was kind of, you know, in the family a little bit. I, I feel like mostly it was that science was my favorite subject in, in school growing up. And so okay. I think I gravitated more towards math and science uh, focuses. Um, and I always really liked orthopedics. I just, I thought mm. that, you know, I was an athlete growing up. Um, I didn't play any college athletics, but I, I did play, you know, all through my, my adolescence. And I just, I thought orthopedics was really cool. So when I graduated from nursing school, I took a job in Manhattan working at Wow Cornell on the, um, operating room floor there. And it was actually the entire orthopedic department that I was working oh. with. So I was around orthopedic surgery sort of immediately um, as a nurse. And then I went back and got my nurse practitioner at NYU. I stayed working throughout the whole time. Um, okay. And I ended up staying at the hospital for special surgery for close to seven years. Um, yeah, it was great. That so I is saw a lot of different orthopedic patients in all different um, departments. That right and hospital for special surgery is kind of like the place to go for orthopedics. Yes, right? correct. Yeah. yeah, it's it's been rated number one, I think, for eleven years in a row by U.S. World and News Report. Wow. So when you were growing up, did you have any injuries? Is that why you? No, <laughs> you just... no. I just I thought that of all the different fields of medicine, I don't know. I I, I found it to be like a little bit more happy than some of the other, you know, it was like, Oh, you have an injury and now you're going to see this doctor and it's going to be fixed. You know what I mean? Okay, it wasn't, right, um, right. it wasn't sort of this longer term 
care plan typically, although there obviously there are situations where that is the case, but right. for the most part, it was a little bit, you know, broken, fixed. Right. That's true. Good point. It's why a lot of nurses go into labor and delivery because it's happy right. usually, right. typically. Right. right? And, and that's the beauty of nursing is that there's so many opportunities for different specialties totally. um, that you can, you know, get into whatever you need or whatever attracts you. So during the during the the stint at hospital for special surgery, it sounds like from last week's uh, introduction to you that you had uh, under the tutelage of of one orthopedic physician that you started to work with was it Doctor Lane I think. Yep, Doctor Lane. Yeah. I worked for him for a while. And and on that research team, what you know, what were you uh, doing? Doctor Lane is a a pretty impressive researcher, um, and he's you know when I was working with him, he was honestly towards the end of his career, so he had you know developed quite um, a reputation amongst the the sort of research group. But he was doing actually NIH grants, oh. um, and so one of the projects that we were working on was uh, pelvic fracture healing, and there's a drug called Forteo at the time. Mm -hmm. There's a few different iterations of it now, but um, it's an anabolic agent that's used to actually augment fracture healing. So it increases fracture healing. And typically pelvic fractures are, you know, a geriatric type of fracture. So, you know, you have what they call a ground level fall and that will result in, in a fracture where you don't need surgery, but you need uh, protective weight bearing for a period of time. And we did a study with the NIH where we would take a group, it was a double blind study. We would take groups of patients and either put them on Forteo or a placebo mm. and to look at how quickly it would um, increase the healing because the drug currently only has a label with the FDA for osteoporosis, not right. for fracture healing, even right. though we know that it you know, anecdotally and in the literature, I think it's Japanese literature that supports the fracture healing. So we were trying to help get the FDA to grant another oh, label okay. application of it because okay. um, it's a really expensive drug. And so people on Medicare can't necessarily afford it. Um, if you're, you know, if it's not considered, if, it, if it's considered an off-label use, you have to pay okay. out of pocket for it typically. Right. So that was one of the main ones that I was working on, but Honestly, he had at any given time like eight or nine projects at, at wow. you know going on, and he had a big research assistant team. You know, a lot of kids that are considering applying to medical school after college, they'll take a year or two off and do research, and then go to med school. So we always had a you know some students in the office, which was fun. Interesting. Okay, so that makes sense. So then, so you um, then left, uh, and in your current position, you're at best in class MD. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about you're now director of operations, right? Yep. And, and clinical operations specifically. So um, really, you know, spearheading sort of all of the, the clinical strategy and um, you know, which groups we want to be working with. Um, and so, yeah, one of the, another one of the physicians that I worked with at HSS, who is also an orthopedic surgeon, he founded the company. Um, and when he was, you know, telling me about it. I thought it sounded like a, a great opportunity. And I worked sort of part-time for a couple of months just to make sure that I was going to like it. It was a bit, you know, <laughs> big change leaving right, the, right. leaving the clinical field to go and work on, you know, sort of a more of a business kind of back-end type of role. But right. I, I did that for a couple of months, loved it. And then I left about a year ago full, to join them full-time. So um, when we'll talk about your, I mentioned entrepreneurial spirit, but what attracted you to working at best in class? Like what, 
leaving yeah. to your point, leaving the hospital after all this research and you were at the premier orthopedic hospital. What, what made you make the leap? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. I mean, to, you know, to your, something that you said earlier is that it's kind of the beauty of nursing is that you really can do so many different things, you know, with, with your degree, there's a million different jobs that you can have. And I think, you know, even until I graduated my graduate program, I, I didn't even realize this whole other world of, of job opportunities outside of the hospital setting or the oh, outpatient okay. setting. And, um, you know, I think I was just ready for a new challenge. I think the patient population that I was working with at HSS, which was, you know, all specifically orthopedics, but towards the end, it was a geriatric patient population. It was a lot of geriatric fractures, things like that. I think I was just ready for a change and I didn't really see a lateral move to another clinical area as super exciting or appealing. And I also didn't really see hospital administration as super exciting or appealing. Um, <laughs> why not, you know. Kirsten? I can't imagine why during a pandemic <laughs> well, that you wouldn't and, see that. <laughs> you know, I I actually, you know, worked on a project or two because I was like, maybe I would like it, you know, maybe it just seems boring. No, it's boring. <laughs> I tell you, it's very dry. <laughs> right. So I was like, you know, that's not necessarily it. And it just, it, you know, I believed in the founders of the company. I think that was one of the biggest things. I, I really mm -hmm. believed in what they were trying to do. I believed in their sort of ethical approach to medicine and just their their energy levels and their you know belief for for the changes that we could make in sort of this expert medical opinion world. And so okay. I was like, you know, I'm young enough that you can always kind of go back to these right. nursing jobs too. So I felt like that obviously, you know, played a big factor into it that right. I was kind of like willing to take the risk, so to speak. Good for you. Good for you. To all those points that you made, but I, I think it it's uh, again speaking to your spirit. So, so tell us about what it, you know. The, tell us about the service. Tell us about the two founders. Talk a yeah. little bit about best in class. Yeah. So, um, one of the founders, Dr. Machuku, is his name. He's a sports medicine attending at HSS, and he worked actually for a period of time during his residency at another expert medical opinion company. And you know, as your audience probably knows second opinion companies, expert medical opinion companies are, there's a, there's many of them and they, yeah. you know, take up a big part of the market share. This is not sort of a novel concept, but he really saw a lot. He, he was very aware of the inner workings of the company and saw a lot about who was doing the reports, how the reports were being written, um, what the actual, you know, clinical substance of those reports were. And he just saw a lot of opportunity for improvement. So this predates the pandemic, you know, significantly. This is many years ago. Okay. Um, and so the, you know, the idea for this startup actually was was born out of his experience working for another company in the space. And then with the pandemic, you know, I think the biggest hurdle about tele telehealth and telemedicine services was actually physician adoption and not yeah. not necessarily patient adoption. I think it was both, but the physician adoption was, you know, arguably a harder nut to crack because right. some of these very good physicians just did not see it as, you know, worth their time. They, you know, they didn't need to do it. They didn't want to do it. Um, and with the pandemic, really, that was the main opportunity to recruit them all and, and get them kind of bought into this idea. Oh, okay. okay. Um, and so that, that was sort of how, 
how it started. And the other founder, Dr. Williams, he is another sports medicine surgeon at HSS. He's a little bit uh, further along in his career, and he is actually the team physician for several of the New York teams, the Nets and the Liberty and the Red Bulls, and he takes care of the Olympic basketball teams, USA basketball for men and women. So he was in Tokyo uh, for the Olympics, and he has all kinds of pictures with Kevin Durant and wow. holding Jeez. gold medals. Really cool. Does he, does yeah, he have those really in cool. his office? That's kind of yeah. intimidating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does. She's like, gee, doc, I only have a sprained ankle. Sorry. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Kevin Durant's got a you know bad foot, but I only have a sprained ankle. You'll, you'll be fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and isn't that the thing with orthopedic doctors that I've always felt when I've gone to them? It's like, you know, I'm not a, a professional athlete, but please treat me as one, right. Don't exactly. treat me as just a weekend right. athlete. Right. right. Like, oh, right. You'll be fine. Stay off of it. Mm-hmm. So, so they, they saw an opportunity, they saw an opportunity to do it better. Right. So how do they do it? What's the, what's the process um, to yeah. get a second opinion? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I think it's becoming at least a little bit more and more well known that, you know, second opinions are valuable for a lot of different reasons. And it's less of this really offensive action for a patient to take to get a second opinion. You know, I think most physicians understand that that's a very reasonable step in right. the medical decision making process. Right. And it's a little bit more supported on a, on a general level. Um, and so, you know, their, you know, their main, re, their main um, view of of what they could improve upon was the the quality of the MD network and who actually is writing the opinions. Because getting a second opinion from a doctor that's that's equal or less qualified than the original doctor that you're getting the opinion from isn't necessarily helpful, right? You know, you're not you're getting a it's a different opinion, but it's not necessarily a better opinion. And sometimes that can actually just make everything more confusing because you're not now sure which um which plan to follow and and if one is not necessarily better than the other, you're not in a better place about what to do for your for your care. So that was sort of the main focus that they um, saw an opportunity for. And so our network is invitation only. And so the recruitment and identification process for who we invite to be a participating physician in our network is pretty rigorous and, you know, is kind of the core of what we promote to our clients and what we promise to our patients. Um, And so we look at, generally, we look at five different things and you know some this is you know not the strictest criteria in the world but these are kind of our loose guidelines it's the the institution that the physician pr- currently practices at and it's important to note that all of our physicians are they work as independent contractors with best in class md so they maintain a primary um practice within mm-hmm. you know wherever it is that they work um and i think that's important because you know i think that the physicians that are actually actively practicing, performing surgery, seeing patients um, in person typically have the best recommendations, right? You don't want a, a doctor who doesn't see patients anymore giving you advice right. on on what to do because I think right. it can be a little bit right. removed from right. reality. Right. Right. Thanks um, for nothing. Yeah, right. 
Um, so we look at the institution that they practice at. We look at where they did a fellowship training. Everybody is fellowship trained on our network. We look at where they did a residency training, where they went to medical school. And then the final thing is the number and quality of academic research publication. So we typically find that, you know, the best physicians and the physicians who have sort of the latest and greatest toolbox right. are the ones contributing to academic research and, you know, kind of pushing the field forward in that way. Right. Do, is there any uh, consideration? Uh, I know we often coach our nurses at Guardian Nurses about outcomes, about volume, right? So the, the physician who's doing 20 knee surgeries uh, may not be the one you want if there's another one doing 500. Right. So is there right. is there any consideration of volume or do, do you just assume that because they're in an academic health center that that's kind of given? Yeah. Yeah. We don't we don't look actually that granular at the case volume and, and things like that. Not to say that we won't in the future, but just currently right now we don't. But, okay. you know, I think not all of our doctors work at academic institutions. Most of okay. them do, but we definitely have, you know, private practice physicians as well. Okay. Typically they've they go from academic institutions to a private practice. That's kind of like the trajectory. But um, we, you know, based on the qualifications, we know that every doctor is hitting X number of procedures per okay. year. Um, you know, so they're, this is kind of, you know, what they're living and breathing is, is orthopedic surgery day in and day out. So. Right. Right. Practice makes perfect as we right. say. Uh, are there any issues getting the physician's, like, I guess I want to say double dipping, right? The concept of double dipping, like I'm working at, you know, Cornell or HSS and I'm working on the side for hospital, you know, for best in class MD. Is there any conflict of interest going on? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, it, you know, it's something that is top of mind when I'm, you know, speaking to, to prospective doctors. Um, and so it's, it's actually all based on the fact that BICMD services are considered educational encounters. And so everything that is discussed or written or communicated, you know, through a best in class MD consultation right. is for educational purposes only. Hmm. And so the tool is really meant to be a decision-making tool. You know, you're talking to a physician who has, you know, very sp subspecialized expertise in whatever it is that the problem is. And they're mm -hmm. saying, you know, based on my experience, based on my research, based on X, Y, Z, this is what I would do. And then from there, you can make a decision about who actually is going to follow out that treatment plan and take care of you. So if you want to change providers, we can either help with a referral to another physician in your area, maybe at a center of excellence, some, you know, somebody that is, you know, maybe part of the network or one degree separated from the network, something like that. Or you can actually see the BICMD physician, but when you go and see them in their office, it's as if you're a regular patient. It goes through your okay. regular insurance coverage. You become a formal onboarded patient. You're seen through the institution. So BICMD is kind of just the the referral process um, okay. and like a stepping stone in the next step of the plan of care. And so because everything is educational, a lot of the institutions have no issue with the uh, physicians participating. And actually it, it ends up being 
and a lot of times a, a good referral source for the institutions. Yeah, I was just because, thinking that. Yeah. yeah, you can you can screen, you know, who is a good surgical candidate or not. And the client satisfaction is a little bit higher because you know, if you don't need surgery and you don't need to make a trip to the hospital and you don't need to, you know, take a whole day off of work to do, you know, the whole doctor's appointment, which it always ends up taking an entire day for some reason, (laughs) uh, even though you get 10 minutes with the doctor, um, then, you know, you've, you've saved kind of an appointment that might be better for an actual surgical candidate. So the, the institutions typically buy, buy into it when, you know, okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, the big bad insurance companies, so let me talk a little bit about that. I I do not think um, insurance companies pay for this type of consultation. Is that correct? Um, yes. Tip, yes. We don't participate with any insurance companies. I, th- I think that insurance companies that pay for a second opinion, they want you to get the second opinion through the doctor that they have hired typically, um, mm-hmm. you know, like an internal group at a physician at an insurance company. So, um, yeah, that, 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 that's typically, uh, typically the answer. Um, and I think, you know, I think there is something to be said about not wanting to get a decision from the organization that is paying for your surgery, because at the end of the day, you know that the motivation for that is always going to be financial, right? Yeah. And so they're always going to recommend typically the, the cheaper option, which sometimes it's conservative care, you know, sometimes not, but I think it it introduces a lot of doubt for mm-hmm. the patient when you're getting an opinion that's facilitated by the person that's paying for the for the operation because in the back of your mind you're always thinking well of course they're going to say no because they don't want to pay for it right um and then you know the confidence level that you need going into any major medical decision making is so crucial and so if you're not confident about what it is that you're embarking on automatically you're, you know, you're set up for failure because you're not gonna, you know, your, your perspective on the entire situation is just going to be poorer when you're not confident. Yeah. We, we often say follow the money. Um, right. So if there is, and I, you know, I don't understand why they wouldn't pay for, uh, I, I will say that insurance companies, at least the ones that we work with their national uh, with a lot of the patients that we have, they have rich benefits and, What's always interesting to me is that patients still have the perception that they're, is this second opinion going to be covered as though they wouldn't cover it when they're insured. And it's like, no, no, it'll be covered. And part of the charm. And I think you realized this last week, part of the charm is that our, our nurses can tee up that second opinion with another hospital or another physician, maybe not a nationally recognized one, but somebody who is a different opinion than the one Mm -hmm. that they just got. And that does help the 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 um decision making process to your point right so it's always better to get two heads two heads are better than one as we say but i just don't understand in terms of when you're looking at expert medical opinions when you're looking at the the best in class doctors um those who are you know chiefs and have done all the research that this uh, that this service wouldn't be covered it doesn't maybe it will be in the future because it, it often to your point would would lend a different treatment plan. And yeah. that is, you know, if we were thinking about what's best for the patient, and I know mm-hmm. that doesn't always 
happen in the insurance company. But what's best for the patient might be right to have surgery and and to right. have it done by a qualified you know, doctor who's doing a thousand of these a day, or I'm sorry, a year. Whoops. Yeah. Not a day. <laughs> a day. Not a day. Not a day. That would not be a good quality. Not quality. <laughs> um, so let's talk about, so the orthopedic second opinion, which is what uh, birthed the uh, best in class MD company out of HSS. So we've talked to patients all the time. We've talked on the podcast. We've had nurses come on and tell stories about the value of getting a second opinion. But certainly when it comes to orthopedics, it always feels like that's the sweet spot for getting a different treatment plan, right? Because, mm -hmm. you know, a, a spine surgery is not always the best uh, decision, right? It's a 50-50 shot to, to have right. a better outcome. So um, I appreciate that you as a nurse can bring that to the discussion. But uh, I, I know that you and I have talked about the top five things to do before seeing an orthopedic um, or before having an orthopedic procedure. Uh, and one of them is knowing about your condition. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was going to say, I think your, your very first podcast episode of lighting your way was the value of a second yes. opinion. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, thank you. you. Know. Thank you for remembering. Yeah. So, you know, clearly it's, you know, something that is, has been top of mind in your, in your education to your, um, to your nurses and therefore to your clients. So it's great. Um, yeah, we, we have a little blog post on our website that is meant to be, you know, a resource for patients who are kind of doing their own research about second opinions. And yeah, knowing about your condition is obviously step one, right? And so, you know, knowing that you have the correct diagnosis and the and the right diagnosis is really, really, really important. And actually, a lot of these opinions where we see the biggest change in the treatment plan or the biggest impact, either clinically or financially, from you know, the expert medical opinion is when there's a misdiagnosis mm. and they're more common than you would think. Um, and so having the radiology actual uh, study, not just the report is really important for specifically getting an orthopedic second opinion, because a lot of orthopedic physicians interpret radiology yes. reports themselves. They're not radiologists, right. but they, right. they have a level of um, education in interpreting orthopedic exams that is really, really valuable. And so, yeah. you know, if you submit your imaging alongside the report, typically there's a lot of um, incomplete diagnoses. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's, you know, there's this going on, but there's also this that you may have mm -hmm. missed. And, okay. and so getting the, you know, starting with the right diagnosis is just critical for everything that is to follow. Because if you're treating the wrong thing, you know, obviously it's not going to be successful and you're going to have a lot of sort of downstream problems from that. So that is, is step one. And, you know, client patients can do a lot of research on a yeah. diagnosis, right? As long as you yeah. have the right diagnosis, there's tons of, you know, in, in the world that we live in, there's no shortage. Of, you have to be careful about what you're reading and, you know, where it's coming from and what the source is. Obviously, Dr. Google is all over the place and there's yes. all kinds of ridiculous uh, yes. information out there. But yes. as long as it's from, you know, a reasonable source, there's a lot that you can educate yourself on before 
you know, before anything. And, and I, I think one of the suggestions or recommendations, I guess, from the blog post is that you should get to know your orthopedic surgeon. And I think that's probably for us as nurses, we can kind of see behind the scenes. We can kind of get a sense of, you know, what they're like to work with and what's their typical uh, strategy for this and for that. But for, a you know, a normal everyday patient, how does somebody get to know their orthopedic surgeon? Yeah, well, you know, you can research their academic research, right? So you, you know, that's all public information is, you know, what, what articles they've published, what exactly the outcomes are. There's all different databases that you can look up to see, you know, kind of reviews on a doctor. Um, you know, I, I laugh because, you know, getting to know your orthopedic surgeon in the course of, of an appointment, typically when they're <laughs> seeing, yeah, right. When they're seeing maybe 40, patients in a day and they're kind of running out of the room, it's, you know, you might not get to really know them in, in the course of that consultation, but <laughs> right. there's research that you can do, you know, outside of that. And then typically, you know, I say that, um, physician's assistants, you know, specifically orthopedic surgeons typically have a physician's assistant that they're working with who's mm -hmm. in their office. They're a great, great resource for questions and kind of, you know, asking some of the maybe longer answer questions that maybe the doctor doesn't have time for, you know, okay. they typically are just spitting back, you know, information that they hear the doctor saying all day, every day. So you, you really are, are oftentimes getting probably the same exact answer that the doctor would be answering. Um, and, you know, I, I, I really encourage patients to use them as a, as an educational resource. That's a great suggestion. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot at Guardian Nurses is to get a, a game plan, right? right. Uh, you're an athlete, I'm an athlete, right? So it's, what's the game plan? What are we going to do? And and that is certainly, I guess, the last and most important piece for a patient a, a approaching some orthopedic injury. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, ha you know, having the plan, the correct plan, understanding you know, exactly what to do is, is critical. And so, you know, if your plan is actually before you've made a decision about surgery or not, or just what your treatment plan is, I mean, we have a couple of things listed on the website. I think before surgery, there's things that everybody can do. Smoking, got to stop smoking, okay. you know, getting on a healthier diet, losing weight a lot of times with, you know, knee pain, back pain, hip pain, weight is a big factor in that. And, and sometimes, you know, if you lose the recommended amount of weight, the pain can actually be resolved just from that alone. Um, you know, get exercising, making sure that if you're on other medications for different things, diabetes, heart disease, you know, your blood pressure is under control, your blood sugar is under control. Mm -hmm. All of those things are critical for, you know, having good outcomes for no matter what it is that you're doing. But True. those are, those are some of the things to kind of I think top of mind before surgery. And then, you know, during, during surgery, you know, just, I think having, you know, everything in life I, I'm realizing is about managing expectations. Right. And so if you are, if you are very educated on what to expect, this is what's going to happen this day. This is what's going to happen this night. You know, this is the amount of pain that you should be expecting. You know, there's a lot that can, um, be improved from an outcome perspective because you're, you know what to expect. And so you're ready for it. And so I think a lot of that can be resolved kind of beforehand. 
Right. And I, I will tell a, a personal story when I had a, an inguinal hernia, a hernia in my groin, and I just went to the local doctor. And right. this is this is when I was a nurse. And I I just assumed that she knew what to do, you know, what to do. She was young. And I thought it's just a hernia. And turns out, you know, she sewed up a nerve uh, in the stitching oh and God. I was having pain and I had to have it addressed uh, by another uh, attending physician at a large academic medical center uh, because he was the only one that would go in and try that. Right. But I, I wow. should have, you know, I say that to patients when I'm working with it, you know, don't, don't be afraid. It, I did it. I didn't get a second opinion and it, and it ended up not being a great outcome. I mean, it did in the end, but now, um, so, okay. So getting a second opinion. Now, let me tell you about, let's switch to golf because one of the things that, uh, when I was with a patient getting a second opinion, he, the physician had enough time to bond with the patient about golf. It was like, <laughs> uh, really, it was like, wait a minute, are we going to talk about the medicine here? The, you know, consultation, they were just chattering away about golf. And I was like, okay. So I was really intrigued by uh, you and your three friends who started Gruder Golf. So as a, a nurse practitioner, who has time to golf? You're, you're busy. Come on. What, what, what is this Gruder Golf? Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's been really, really, really fun. So when I was a, maybe five years ago, my girlfriends and I, you know, we just wanted to see what it was all about. You know, we knew a lot of guys, our, our, our guy friends from college, um, a lot of people kind of peripherally, my family never really played. So it wasn't like I grew up, um, you know, going to a country club or anything like that. But right. we just had an, an interest about golf and what, what all the hype was about. You know, what, <laughs> why is it that all these guys go and spend every Saturday and Sunday, you know, for four hours doing, doing what is it? <laughs> and so we went and tried it out and we just had the best time. I mean, it, it's very, very difficult, but you, you have one good shot. And it, it's like addicting, you know, you, it makes you want to come back. And so, but it, it was super intimidating, super intimidating, yeah. like really, really hard sport. You need all new equipment. You need a brand new outfit. Basically you need, you know, all <laughs> right. Cause the things. outfit is important. It is right? important. And there's yeah. dress codes that are yeah. like intimidating and scary and you don't want to be, you know, dressed inappropriately. And so I think all of those things that, you know, are, are scary about it. I wouldn't, I don't think I would have started on my own, right? The fact that I okay. had my two best friends from college were there with me, okay. you know, gave you the confidence to just be like, yeah, we're going to go, we're going to go all go together. We're going to be bad. It's going to be funny, you know, whatever. <laughs> and and, you get and none be... of them had experience either, right? You yeah, were all no, it was, okay. it was all the first time for any of us really playing, which was another critical element to it because we were all <laughs> bad. You know, you don't want to start playing with, with somebody who is good because they're not going to have a good time and you're right. not going to have a good time. Right. So, you know, the fact that we started playing and then as we kind of got going, we were like, you know, why, why is it that no women really play? You know, why, why are we such the minority when we showed up at that golf course? We were the only three girls there playing okay. besides the cart girl who was serving the <laughs> drinks, you know? <laughs> and we're like, you know, looking around, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. And we're like, let's start having these sort of get togethers once a month. And I, you know, I was living in Manhattan. I, one of my friends was living in Manhattan. The other one was up in Boston. We all went to BC together. 
And um, we started hosting these monthly gatherings around New York City. And every single month, they doubled in size. So somebody wow. was like, brought a friend, brought a cousin, brought That's a great. coworker, whoever. That's great. Until maybe nine months later, we had a hundred girls at, at oh. one of the events. Oh. And we're looking around and we don't Yikes. know anybody. And we're like, wow, you know, this is this is a company, I think. <laughs> you know, right. I think we could maybe make this a company. So we started, you know, getting a little bit more into the event space. We have a membership. It's all about, you know, providing resources and a community of female golfers, beginner golfers to kind of connect and, and sort of explore the game together and, and providing that environment that is kind of shelter from the very intimidating world that golf is. Um, and so, you know, now we, we actually have a podcast, um, called low expectations which is fun we try to focus a little bit on speaking about uh, expectations of yeah, surgery right yeah. low expectations uh yeah well the the expectations for golf skills are very low so that's, <laughs> you know, that's where that comes from um and we try to focus on the lpga and bringing awareness and fanship to the lpga um because that's a great product that you know not a lot of people really have um a lot of uh, exposure to. Right. And, you know, just continuing to try to encourage women to get out there and play. I think golf is a great tool for a lot of different things. You know, it's fun, obviously, uh, you know, first and foremost, it's a really fun thing to go do on the weekends. But, you know, for, you know, you were saying before, you know, different business ventures and, you know, networking generally, right. it's a very, very useful skill to have and you don't have to be good you just have to have enough confidence to be like yep i'm coming i'm coming yep. out on the golf outing yep. and you know if i shoot 115 who cares i'm still out there having all the conversations that you know are that i should be having because i'm just as qualified to have them as you know the next person correct right yeah. we, we have a we have a golf team at guardian nurses because of the golf outings that we often get invited to right. and you know, so when we interview nurses now, it's like, do you golf? <laughs> I love that. Great. Perfect. And, and always everybody's like, I'm not that good. Doesn't matter. We don't care. Mm -hmm. We just having mm -hmm. fun, you know, because it'll just be the four of you going out. Right. Right. Uh, so amidst to, to a tournament, certainly in the building trades, often a lot of men, not that many women. And yet, you know, they always have fun and the guys are great. Do you when you have these events, are you renting a course? I mean, it's got to be hard to get 100 women. Yeah, of course. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we do. We rent it out. So it's like a full shotgun outing. Usually we do it in sort of the late afternoon on a Saturday. Um, okay. cause that's when, you know, well, we go to public courses because not everybody is very good and, and a lot of beginners, they don't necessarily know the rules yet. And so okay. you got to be aware, you know, of going to a private course, there's a, typically a lot stricter rules there. Um, and then, you know, going to a public course, at least around New York City, the dress code is very relaxed. So you okay. don't have to, you know, you can tell people you don't have to buy golf shoes. You can wear sneakers. You don't have to okay. buy a long skirt. You can wear athletic short, you know, whatever it okay. is. And so that that's been really helpful. Um, and yeah, we rent it out so that they, you know, it's not taking up the entire day. They can still keep their tea times open in the morning. Um, and yeah, so we do what's called a shotgun. So every, you know, I'm sure you're familiar. Everybody starts on a different hole. Everybody right. in the group starts on a different hole and you kind of just like go in a circle sort of chasing the group uh, ahead of you. So some groups start on hole five and end on hole four, you know? Okay. Um, 
And yeah, it's super fun. Super fun. And, and, um, do you have instructions for the, for the rookies, you know, for the novices that come on, or is it just, you know, get out there? Do you pair them with someone who kind of knows what they're doing? Yes, we do. We have, we have instructions and the teams are, you know, very thoughtfully planned out. So we, we play as what's called a scramble. So all four people are on a team and the way that a scramble works is that every person gets to hit the ball and of the best shot, everybody's all the teammates pick up their ball and drop it where the very best person's ball went. So oh, if good. you have a, a, and that happens each shot. So all off the tee, you go to the best one, the next shot, you go to the best one, the next shot, you go to the best one until it's in the hole. And so if you have, just one person who doesn't even need to be good, but just knows the rules and knows about pace of play and knows about kind of, you know, how to, how to sort of herd the group together, <laughs> then the, the, the true beginner can hit it into the woods every single time. And they'll never even have to use one of their shots throughout the day. So the pressure is a lot lower, right? There's okay. not a lot of pressure to have a good shot because you have three other teammates who can have a good shot and, and bring you guys forward. That's great. I mean, right. Yeah. Cause there is no pressure. And do, do you right. keep score? No, absolutely not. No, <laughs> no score keeping. <laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a perfect day on the course. It really <laughs> is. Just getting out it... there to, to, to try your best and, and yeah. hit a good shot. Yeah. It's wonderful. <laughs> I, what, what it's always intimidated me about golf is just the equipment, right? To your point. Right. I mean, the, the golf, uh, clubs alone. Uh, yeah. right. And when I've gone out, I've always gone out with an experienced golfer who'll say, okay, hit, pick the seven iron and do it this way. Right. And okay. Do it this with this. Cause I never knew what, uh, club to use because mm -hmm. I didn't yeah. do it that often. But yeah, that's, that's um, a big question. What club to use? It's hard. I mean, even, st you know, I still sometimes don't know what club to use. And because it's only, if you're not consistent, sometimes it goes 50 yards, sometimes it goes 150 yards. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it's, uh, it's unclear to me, too. <laughs> so, so you've taken three of your friends and now you have 150 friends that are following you. Uh, exactly. do, you're still enjoying it. You still want to grow it. Still enjoying it. Still wanting to grow it. We're, you know, we're trying to figure out how to make the events, you know, a little bit more um, self-sufficient where we don't, the three of us don't necessarily have to be at every single thing because okay. it's hard, you know, it's hard with, you know, your, my day job and, you know, just other life things. So we're trying, you know, trying to see how we can sort of nominate ambassadors, so to speak, to run different events. Cause I think the, the key about it is having consistency in the mm -hmm. events, right? You have something to go to on a, not, not every week, but, you right. know, on a, on a consistent basis that gives you sort of the encouragement to keep showing up and keep playing and you, you meet friends there. And as soon as you have friends to go with it, it just makes it honestly so much easier right. to have the confidence to say, let's go, let's go out today. What about have are there leagues? I know down here in Philly there are um ladies leagues, evening leagues, right? Nine holes where mm -hmm. you can just go after work and it's a to that point to the consistent uh outing. Is is there yeah. something that could be Yeah, there there's a ton there's a ton of stuff. I mean, typically the leagues are, you know, if you're a member at a club and so that, oh. you know, oh, that's gotcha. that's right. great, but 
I, you know, I think it takes a while to commit to, you know, it's really expensive a lot of times to join a country club. Okay. And so, yeah. you, you know, you kind of have to know that you love it and know that it's going to be something that you want to do for a while in order right. to, to jump on that commitment. But there's a place called Five Iron Golf and they have locations in Philly. They have a couple in New York. They're opening in Boston. They're all over the place. They just opened in Seattle, DC, Pittsburgh, all these places. Okay. And it's a it's a simulator bar. So it's you're you're hitting on a piece of turf with a real club and a real ball, but you hit into a, a screen that's oh. a simulator. And so it sort of projects where the ball would go based on how you actually hit it. And they have Lee. That's where we've done a lot of stuff because oh, you know, okay. a lot of people are in the city. It's a fun sort of environment to go learn and play at. Right. And they have leagues that are public and you don't have to be, you know, a member of five iron. And so we, we facilitate some of those as well. Um, and that's been, been really fun for the women too. And most of the marketing that you've done has been on social media, which has been yep. very interesting, right? You've grown from three friends to now a hundred and you know, more than a hundred people coming out. That's all been yeah. done through social oh, media. And, yeah. I mean, we have lots more than, Lots more than that. Now we've done events in Chicago and Boston and Philly and DC. Um, we're trying to, you know, kind of expand our reach, but yeah, this, the power of social media is really, um, it's really been amazing um, to see. <laughs> and, you know, you, you get one person to come and then they tell three friends about it. And, right. you know, so all of a sudden there you have this sort of like spidering effect, which has been great. I think it's great because I, I I think if I had, you know, if I was younger and there was something like that available, I would have done it. Right. But, yeah, you know, there wasn't really there. Well, I knew there were public courses, but certainly the, the country club courses were not something that I would have thought of. So, yeah. Kudos totally. to you and your friends. Oh, thanks. Right. That's the <laughs> entrepreneur in you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. Congratulations. Thank you. That's Thank great. You. Thank you. I just hope it doesn't take you away from nursing. Don't nah, do it. It won't. It won't. It's a passion project, you know? Right. And and certainly a stress reliever, given, the, yeah, given all definitely. that you're going through. So. Definitely. So thank you, Kirsten, for, for joining me again. Thanks for the information. Uh, and, and really, uh, it's been a joy talking with you. Thanks. I'm glad we yeah, met. Yeah, Betty, thanks so much. It was wonderful. You know, if anybody has any questions, you know, I, I, I told your team to anytime you guys want to reach out, I'm happy to answer any questions, help with just, you know, being a sounding board for any patients with orthopedic issues. And your your um, Best in Class MD website is, what's the URL yep. for that? It's bestinclassmd.com or bicmd.com. Either one of them will take you to the same pace. We have a lot of, like I mentioned, blogs, resources on there about the value of second opinions, um, you know, some of the doctors on our network, what conditions we treat. Um, and yeah, you know, and if I can help in any way with any patient, whether they need BICMD or not, I'm happy to do so. Thank you very much. And happy that our paths crossed. Me too. All right. Good. Take care. Thanks, Betty. Bye-bye. If you have any questions that you would like us to address in a future episode, please email us at podcast at guardiannurses.com. That email again is podcast at guardiannurses.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us this week. You can find the Lighting Your Way podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, YouTube, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you liked what you heard, 
tell a friend and leave us a review. You can learn all about Guardian Nurses Healthcare Advocates on our website, guardiannurses.com. So until next time, find some joy in your life, pet all the good doggies and kitties, and remember to tell your people that you love them. Take care.